boys and girls, children of all ages. This is episode 70 of the Pure Tokyo Scope podcast. I am Patrick Macias, the co-author of the new book, A Kid's Guide to Anime and Manga. And I'm Matt Alt, the author of the old book, Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World. Well, not that old. Not as old as 70, which is what this podcast is today. Oh my God. Or 58. There are several anniversaries we're going to talk about. There are. There's quite a few, aren't there? 58s and 69s or 59s? I don't Well, we'll, we'll get into that. But how are you feeling at 70, Patrick? I'm feeling war at 33 and a third. <laughs> Uh, the B-side wins again. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say right now. Oh, it's at 70. Okay, the Pure Tokyo Skip podcast at 70. Yes. Well, it is what it is. So I don't yes. know, is that what they say nowadays? You know, it's definitely true. It is what it is. And wherever you go, there you are. So, And I want to tell our advertisers that will not be advertising anymore on X, like Pizza Hut and Shakey's. They can advertise with us. We're open. Our DMs are open. Exactly. We'll take all of those advertising dollars because there's nothing better than associating your brand with Pure Tokyo Scope. Like the Shogun Steakhouse or what else? The GoBot Bubble Machine. I think we also have ads from them sometimes. Shaky should definitely be a, uh, a sponsor. We have to we have to contact them about that. I mean, the Matt Alt brand is now indelibly linked to the Pure Tokyo Scope uh, podcast. So, you know, if it's good enough for me, it's it's good enough for you. Merchandising. That's where the real money from the movie comes One from. One of the SH figure arts of us coming out. Did you see at the last uh, Tamashi Nations event that like they made a they made a, an action figure of that? That dude whose entire shtick on Japanese variety TV is wearing a thong and like pretending he's naked. He's wearing a thong? It looks like I thought he was just straight up a rude dude in the nude. Yeah, well, he, he's always like every photo or image of him, like his leg is like carefully posed so you can't see anything. But I, he better be. I don't want. <laughs> <laughs> he's like for those of you who have fortunately never seen this he's like an overweight middle-aged dude who is a comedian and his whole shtick is literally being naked now that's comedy matt you know how hard it is to see a naked man you can't do that on television in america but you can in japan apparently but he doesn't show any naughty bits no naughty bits i swore after hg ramon i would never go down this path again matt but i, I think i may just have to invest heavily in this guy's merchandise because it's so zany and irreverent <laughs> this Razor Ramon. They were like, I, we got an invitation to the event, like, and I was just like, I, you know, normally we go. I love going to Bondi's Tamashi Nations events. Like, they always have lots of figures on display, but all of the imagery I saw coming out of it, I'm like, I was expecting like Gundam, Common Rider, Ultraman, and we did get a man who was ultra of sorts, but not, but minus the wetsuit, minus all of the things I associate with Japanese action figures. I saw some news story where he went to China and like they mobbed him and like forced him to wear like pants like the Hulk. He had to wear like purple shorts. <laughs> Torn. I hope they were like ripped, you know? I don't know how that, how the heck did the Hulk's pants, that was like Bruce Banner wearing like stretch pants that like, I, you know, the, the Hulk is like 10 times his size. I don't know. How, how do you even keep shreds of pants on? I have to consult the uh, the official Marvel handbook. <laughs> right, remember those? I used to have those when I was a kid. I tried to build Wolverine skeleton out of tinfoil using yes. the blueprints in those, but it didn't really work out the way. Oh, too bad. Were you trying to like tattoo, tattoo Two tinfoil to your body so you'd be invincible. Stilt man. My favorite hero of is that Spider-Man? Who does he fight? Spider-Man? That's a daredevil bad guy. <laughs> daredevil, it's a daredevil bad guy. Yes. Stilt man. Why didn't he show up in the Avengers movies? Why, 
St. Patrick. Why? I guess because De- because Devil Man. Devil. I just called. I just called Daredevil Devil Man, and I think that just goes to show you where my mind goes. Daredevil Lady. Did they do that one yet? Daredevil Man. Is that like a crossover? See, now somebody at some anime convention is going to do that as a cosplay, and I'm just going to get very okota. I'm very okota. Speaking of monetizing rage, um, we don't do that here. We only monetize love, and I believe our big news hook is that last week was it? Was a pretty major anniversary, was it not? It went pretty much unnoticed, shockingly so, uh, outside of Japan, but it was Gamera no Hi, Gamera Day in Japan, celebrating the 58th anniversary of the debut of Gamera, the turtle with rockets in his pockets. I was pretty shocked because I thought Gamera Day was every day in Japan, but it turns out it's only once a year. Uh, on the anniversary 11-27-1965, that is the date that Gamera, with two M's if you're writing it in English, The Invincible, debuted in Japanese movie theaters. And nothing was ever the same again. No. I mean, first of all, we're going to get into this, but why is Gamera no He not a national holiday? Why? Why, why, why? I'm very... See, I'm getting angry. Labor Day? Wasn't it also Labor Day that week or something in Japan, wasn't it? Well, they should they should fuse them together, like Giant Turtle Labor Day. I don't know. Yeah, some of those movies are definitely laborious to get through. Let's let's break this down. For, for those of you, I, I, I can't imagine many people listening to this podcast, especially on episode number 70, have never heard of Gamera, but how would you describe... Tell me only the good words that come into your mind, Patrick, about oh, Gamera. Gamera appeared, I guess, during the kaiju boom of the 1960s, uh, a rival to Toho Studios and Godzilla as a sort of an up-and-comer Cinderella story, black and white, uh, giant turtle, fire-breathing turtle, whereas Godzilla breathes like uh, atomic rays that are usually hand-animated. They would actually shoot like propane gas flames out of Gamera's head. And there's there's somebody in that suit, like inches away from a a giant flamethrower. It's it's actually one of the charms of those films. And he can tuck his uh, head and his legs and arms into his shell and and, uh, spin around like a flying rocket ship. Just like real turtles. Would you say, demographically speaking, are we looking older, younger than Godzilla Ooh, audience? They skewed a lot younger, I think. <laughs> yes. Maybe the first three, they were kind of going for those kind of all ages. They kind of threw a lot of money on up on the screen. The first three Gamera movies to me have like great miniatures and like great set pieces. Then they get kind of increasingly crappy and childish kind of uh, tailing off there in 1980 with what Gamera Super Monster, which is like this brain damaging collection of like stock footage. Was Gamera Super Monster the sequel to Jesus Christ Superstar? And Superman the movie, yes. <laughs> Superman Superstar? Gamera, yes. I have always loved Gamera and his lower budget antics. I, I was looking into this because I was like, why a turtle? Not that I have any problem with turtles. I happen to uh, like turtles. Some of my best friends are turtles. Uh, but it turns out that the the then head of Daiei Studios who was, who was quite a guy. His name was Nagata Masaichi, and he was involved in like executive producing hits like Rashomon. Do you know? Perhaps you've heard of it. So he was a big wig, the big wig. He was basically running Daiei Studios. And apparently he like, was in a plane on a business trip and was flying over an island that he, a small island that resembled a tortoise shell. And like, apparently like either when he landed or when he got back, he's like, hey, we're going to make a movie about a giant turtle. And so it began. So I read. So I read. I don't know if you've heard differently, similarly. Are you Gamera splaining to me right now, Matt? (laughs) 
<laughs> Did you know that story? I wrote all the liner notes, like an 80-page book for the Aero Video Gamera box set that came out a few years ago. So yeah, I did my time in the uh, Yeah, but Gamera Patrick, mind. did you study Gamera or did you live it? That's the question. <laughs> That's a good question. I remember as a little kid watching Gamera movies on TV like all the time and going, wow, these are not quite as good as Godzilla movies, but <laughs> yes. uh, they sure, they've got something. They have a certain charm yes. to them and they're often gorier. Like there will be like streams of blood. Some of the kaiju will get their limbs chopped off like it gets really wild yes no it feels it's very much of a moment in the 60s where you and they're always using that kind of red paint blood it's like it it doesn't look anything but somehow it's better the shogun assassin movies all had that same kind of blood i think it was just like something they sold by the barrel in 60s and 70s japan it was tough because the the protagonists were always little kids and as a little it's I, i think it's kind of a given in the entertainment world that you're supposed to make the protagonist of the series someone who is like the, the target audience, right? So if you're aiming at like 10-year-old kids, you want a 10-year-old kid, you know, as the protagonist. But when I was 10, I had no interest at all in watching films with kids in them. I wanted to see like Kyle Reese like sticking dynamite into a Terminator or something like that. So I don't know, maybe I'm just weird. Actually, you know what? I am weird. But uh, whatever the case is, yes, they were really kiddy. Well, they were really kiddy and everyone wrote off Gamera as like the poor man's Godzilla. But then those Heisei Gamera movies started coming out, three of them with uh, Shinji Higuchi. And those were actually probably of their time the best kaiju movies on a technical level that it had maybe ever been done. No, I think, you know, they're tough to beat. You know, of course, the 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 special effects are a little bit dated in them now because they're from the 90s, but it's full suit actors and that never gets old. I don't even mean that as a joke or sarcastically. I mean, like the, the suits were designed by, I mean, they're, I believe that's Haraguchi-san. Our buddy uh, Tomo Haraguchi built the suits. And like Mahiro Maeda, this kind of like great anime character guy designed the costumes. Yes, yeah, yeah. Then of course, Shinji Higuchi, uh, ex-Gynax guy doing the Tokusatsu direction. So yes, it's like a dream team. Oh, and they're and they're amazing movies. Like, and they really like put a lot of thought into it. Like, well, what would happen if Gamera left the stratosphere? Like, you know, all of these, and there's some great shots in there. Um, and I believe in this, is it the second movie where they destroy the new Kyoto station? That's like one of my favorites. That's uh, the third one. Gamera 3 has like the best set pieces because that's the one where they destroy Shibuya, then yes. they destroy Kyoto Station. But Gamera 2 is kind of my favorite. It's one of the ultimate monsters on the loose movie. Like it doesn't yes. have the kind of wacky Gamera spirituality that the first one has. And it doesn't have kind of the, the weird post-Evangelion psychological neuroses of the third one. No, no, no. It's it's very they're very pure. It's just like monsters are attacking and we gotta stop them. Well, the first one I remember they they go into this whole thing about why are giant monsters attacking Japan? Why? Like there's there's literally a scene, and I remember just cracking up because it's been delivered so like flatly like why are giant monsters attacking japan and i was like it was so perfect because it's a question on everybody's mind right i think they explain isn't it like aren't they following like ancient ley lines from like the collapsed civilization of like atlantis or something there's some crazy new agey stuff in there yes. that I, I again i prefer number two where it's pretty much just like the uh, self-defense forces just like making lines in the sand and saying you shall not pass against the monsters well i don't i wonder if you would have shin Gojira or um, Shin Ultraman. Like, I, I got serious Gamera 2 vibes from a lot of Shin Ultraman. Like, just the kind of the the thoroughness and seriousness, the rigor with which the JSDF was portrayed and engaging with the kaiju and stuff. That's called nationalism, Matt. <laughs> they're not, they're a defense force, Patrick. They're defending. They're defending the universe. Like, isn't Gamera the guardian of the galaxy? Is- Wait, what is Voltron? Voltron is the defender of the universe. He's the defender. So he's actually 
very conservative. He's like, he's he just wants to keep things as they are or even turn the clock back. That's why he got voted into office so many times uh, in different forms. Well, the director of the Heisei Gamera movies was Shinsuke Kaneko, right? And yes. then he did make a Godzilla movie, Godzilla GMK. Right. And that's been cited as a major influence on Godzilla Minus One, where you're sort of looking at Godzilla as this sort of personification of, you know, the dead spirits of the soldiers who died during World War II and all this kind of stuff. So that might take us into the next topic. Well, Patrick, what a, what a, as they say in Japanese, baton touch. What a what a baton touch that was to our to our main theme. So just just to wrap it up, Gamera, always awesome. If you've never seen it, watch the 1990s ones, Gamera 1, 2, 3, and then take a lot of shrooms and watch the ones from the 60s. Uh, that's my advice to you. That's one to grow on, Matt. I mean, Nancy Reagan told me to just say no. Or else Mr. T will show up at your school and like <laughs> choke you and then smile. I get angry just thinking about it. It makes me mad. Little kids doing drugs, it turns my stomach. That stuff hurts. It stops you from living up to your potential. It holds you back. It hurts the user. It hurts his family. And it hurts his friends. I just want to shake some sense into you kids that are using drugs and think about using it. So remember, don't, or else, okay? Recouping. Was that, remember that, they showed it to us in class, like it has this kid tripping on the sidewalk and then like kind of breaking the breakdance and Mr. T's like, that's right, that's recouping. That's Mr. T's Be Somebody or Be Somebody's Fool <laughs> with all the rap songs written by Ice-T. And baby, that's cold. Okay, uh, baton touch time. So, you know, we already had quite a big uh, discussion about Godzilla Minus One, did we not? We did. We did a full episode review impressions of Godzilla minus one. I think I had seen it the day before, and then you had just seen it like five minutes before you got on the mic. There's, a, there's one thing I'm noticing about people who see Godzilla minus one and like rush as fast as possible to make reviews. It's they love it. It's the greatest movie ever made. It's better than Cats. They'll see it again and again. I I, I had stumbled out of the theater. The, the the you know the lights were like dazzling me. I like I, I'm like I'm like tripping down the street trying to get to your to your podcast and my podcast so I could tell the world. Since then, I wrote that long review on it for my uh, newsletter blog.pureinventionbook.com and I've had a lot more time to think about it. I still, you know, I, I like it with a lowercase l, but I still have problems with an uppercase P. Does that, does one say that? I don't know. Anyway, I, I liked it, but I still have problems with it. And I want to kind of unravel those in a more measured way this time than we did last time. And I think we can get into spoilers now because yeah. I think everyone in my social media feed ran to the theater as soon as it opened in North America and saw right. it. And then they all ran home to their rooms filled with Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel <laughs> merchandise, turned on a webcam and said, this is the greatest Godzilla movie of all time. It's better than the original. Okay. Okay, so it can be we now. I, what I couldn't say last time is that it was Colonel Mustard in the study with a lead pipe. I believe a candlestick. I thought it was a, a candlestick. candlestick. Well, it was a variety of things that Colonel. It's always Colonel Mustard in my book. So I mean, no Colonel Mustard in this movie. No kernels of any kind in this movie. That was my problem with it. There was some major Spielberg though in the form of all these references to like Jaws and Lost World and Jurassic Park and Private Ryan and Empire of the Sun. And do I need to go on? So just just to just to recap. 
recap, like the, the movie is directed by Takashi Yamazaki, who is a kind of master of melodrama. Like that's what he loves. It's what's his wheelhouse. He loves taking, like making these kind of, you know, interpersonal, he put, he puts the spotlight on these interpersonal relationships where, where characters are put in impossible situations and get love or duty must triumph. The common man struggle, Matt. Mongo only pawn in Game of Life is pretty much like how Godzilla Minus One deals with like the ethical and moral implications of like the war and the atomic bomb. It doesn't really deal with those things at all, which was kind of one of the problems I had with it. But Well, it's the fundamental problem of a Godzilla movie because Godzilla is the star, right? And Godzilla is, you may have noticed this. I don't mean to mansplain to you, but he's like the size of a building. It's really tough to get humans in the same scene with them and let him unless you're like in a jet pack or something like that. Unless you can copy a scene from Jurassic Park or The Lost World world or jaws maybe maybe you could put them in a boat I, i'm not a, i love mashups of weird genres so like taking like a, a sappy melodrama and mashing it up with a kaiju movie is is it's great you know you do you it's not my idea of a great film but you know whatever it's it's i'm all for you know creativity and personal vision and all that but it, it just doesn't the, the problem is that the setup the setup for this movie which is that it's set in 1945 thus it's called godzilla minus one because uh godzilla attacking japan at the very end end of World War II means he's just he's taking an already fallen civilization down yet another rung on the civilization ladder and uh, makes Japan even like more desperate and sad than it was before he showed up. Which is odd because the post-war Japan in this movie seems very rosy and sentimental. It looks more like an earthquake has happened rather yes. than like a war. And that was, that's the thing as I wrote in, in much more probably eloquent detail in my in my newsletter. So the, as I'm, I'm not telling you this, I'm telling the 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 listener, casual or diehard. Japan was occupied between the years of 1945 and 1951 or two. I should know that off the top of my head, but it was. It was occupied. It was essentially an American. It was America. It was like America Far East. You know, police had to salute American soldiers when they saw them on the street. Like MPs are directing traffic. We took all of the buildings that were still standing. You know, we censored the Japanese media. We crushed strikes when Japanese workers tried to do them, like we ran Japan and like, you know, you can argue where we have benevolent, you know, uh, occupation force. Did we result in a, a better Japan, a worse Japan? These things are all very viable things to discuss, but it is a fact. Americans were everywhere in Japan at the time, like everywhere, not just in the military bases. They were all over the streets, like downtown and places. And like, if you look all half the cars were American driven by Americans, it's a very weird moment in Japanese history. So if you're going to set your film at this time, it's kind of strange to just say, well, actually they all just decided to, you know, like Gamera to pull their heads and arms into their shell and not do anything and let the Japanese deal with Godzilla. So why didn't you set it in 1955? Japan still would have been like, still kind of recovering from war and then you wouldn't have had to you know write the Japanese off at all the answer of course is because 1945 is such a loaded year in the minds of Japanese people it's an automatic you know it, it's like a it's like a Dungeons and Dragons like plus 10 of melodrama when you set when you set your film in that time period like it already like primes the pump for like hot tears of, of joy and shame and everything else 
So it was kind of a, a cheat to me. I really was hoping to see a lot more interaction between Japan and Japanese people and Westerners. This isn't some kind of like, oh, we really need more Americans in this. It's like a historical fact. That's the way it was. I saw some Japanese critics saying like they almost felt that this film was set like in an alternate reality. Right. Like as much as they're saying like this is a post-war film, like it's it should, maybe it should have been marketed as like this is an alternate. I have a question for a Japanese person that I'm going to be interviewing for my Substack about Godzilla Minus One. And the question is like, do movies have an obligation to preserving the truth? Right. Does realism matter in a Godzilla movie or something like right, that? Right, right, right. Yeah, because you know, you and I hate I hate being forced to argue this because you and I are the last people on the planet to be like, hey man, that's not real. Like I don't go into movies for like demanding like perfect accuracy or I, I expect reality to be toyed with but this is such a glaring omission that it really makes me wonder well what kind of message is he sending and I've actually seen a lot of comments from especially younger Japanese viewers of the film who loved it and didn't realize until it was pointed out to them that actually no the occupation happened and soldiers were everywhere and this isn't something that like you could have just packed up and left like it was integral to Japanese society at the time like they're they're mistakenly thinking oh, Japan was occupied, but the Americans kind of administrated it from military bases. Because that's how it is now. There's American military bases all over Japan, but Americans pretty much stay on the bases. That's not how it was back then. And by deleting it, it really makes you wonder, is he dog whistling to certain factions in Japan who would prefer it never happened at all? Um, and if he is, what does that mean? So, but I don't like having to argue like, oh man, it's not realistic. It's tough. Well, one thing I noted is like, even the cheapest Toei Yakuza movie or karate movie from the 70s, 70s would have occupation forces in it. I mean, that yes. was such an integral part of society that they they felt obligated to include that in these films. But the difference was these movies were made by people who had direct experience with the war and the post-war era. Whereas Takashi Yamazaki, I think maybe he might have watched Saving Private Ryan a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but it's somebody said in a in a comment on my on my Facebook that like what did you expect? There's not that many uh, American actors or Caucasian actors in Japan who could have played these roles. And I should also say it's not like every GHQ person was Caucasian. I think there were there were people of color uh, certainly serving in the military back then. But I, I'm not expecting them to build up the entire occupation exactly the way it was. But it's kind of a, to me it's kind of a cheap cop out. Oh, there's not enough there's not enough actors in Japan like to to play the roles of foreigners. And it's true. Yeah, you can do like deep fakes or like a CGI or like animatronics, like the Dark Crystal or something like that. Or you could have imported some actors. I, You know, I don't know. It's like if that was really the problem. It's true. Like nobody who decides to dedicate their life to the craft of acting or the, the art of acting who is a native English speaker says, you know what? I'm going to move to Tokyo. <laughs> it's not like a hotbed for like, you know, honing your craft. There's Japanese directors are kind of notorious at directing English speakers. I've been through this myself when I've been directed by people who don't speak English, uh, like when I'm on TV or things like that. They really can, the directors get really nervous and I'm like, take, that's it, that's fine. And I'm like, no, actually, I need to retake that because I swallowed the word or no, 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 we'll just go with that. You know, it's like they don't really expect much. So I get that. Yeah, this movie only costs like $15 million US. I mean, they could have gotten like Bruce Willis with his earpiece and just like fed <laughs> right. him some dialogue to be MacArthur. That's what I would have done. Just have him like call in from Zoom since it's already like an alternate universe anyway. Way, why can't he just zoom in his performance? I don't understand. Let's be honest. Let's be perfectly honest. The, 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 the reason we're angry about this is because we didn't get a chance to be extras in the movie. We didn't get to do the scene like in Godzilla versus King Ghidra with like the two US soldiers. You can tell your son about it, Major Spielberg. 
to me, I feel it's like a mixed blessing because you know the Gaijin actors would have been terrible yes. and would have their scenes would have stunk, like the Satomi Ishihara scenes in Shin oh Godzilla. Oh my god! Oh god! Maybe they knew that they couldn't get Gaijin actors. They knew it would have been stinky, so they said, "Let's just not have any Americans. Let's have no occupation. Let's create an alternate timeline where the occupation just didn't happen." But he should have just set it up that way. He should have set it up that way. He should have set it up that the occupation never happened. That would have then I would have not been having any of these these kind of complaints about it because. Some some of my my many critics have like asked if my issues with the politics of the movie, and they're not not really because he's not. This isn't this this movie isn't some conservative traditional values screed. Uh, without giving too much away, the way it ends is basically a refutation of the entire samurai kamikaze spirit thing. It's about reclaiming your own identity and and your and your need to take care of the people around you. That should trump any politics. Uh, or any kind of you know so-called national duty in in the in the mind of a human being or a well well-rounded one. So it's it's not like this guy is is like rooting for the you know closing the borders again or something like that. The, the politics are, are are what they are. But I just I don't know. I spent so much time researching the occupation era when I was writing Pure Invention, and I had such high hopes for this film because I was like, finally, Japanese people are going to talk about this from their side. Like all of the documentation of the occupation is from. The western side and then he just yeah but Yamazaki's like a corny sentimentalist. I mean, yes. he's done films about kamikaze pilots before. He's done films about, yes. you know, the battleship Yamato. And it's just a, like he's toying with these things that are highly charged yes. signifiers of the war and trauma and all this stuff. And then he just makes, you know, soap opera melodrama out of it. And everyone says, that was the greatest movie I've ever seen. I cried, you know, on my way out. I don't really get it personally. I found the acting, to be brutally honest, pretty stereotypical. Like it was good. I mean, it was it's good in the context of a melodrama. I'm not like a melodrama guy, so I shouldn't be the one doing this, but you know, and I like the action scenes. I, I love that minesweeper ship that like that whole, th- that was a real thing right after the war. They would basically pay Japanese people to go out in boats and like blow up the mines in the harbor because the entire Tokyo Harbor had been mined to keep uh, American warships out. Yeah, my feeling is like I have to look at this movie and say would I like this movie if it didn't have Godzilla in it? And I think the answer would be not really no, no way. I was going to say the same thing. If, if Godzilla wasn't in this movie, we wouldn't even be talking about it because nobody would be talking about it. What if Gamera was in it? Then we would be excited and watching it. Like we'd, st- I'd still be in the theater now, like just in the dark, waiting for the next screening to start. I'm really surprised because in America, it's 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like I have not seen a single person come out of that theater and going like, oh, it was okay. It's like universal love and praise. I think everyone's just been clobbered to death by all those legendary MonsterVerse stinkers. There's so much goodwill towards this character and this brand. Like even a movie that's partially successful feels like the greatest Godzilla movie ever made. No, totally. Total. And it's slick. It, it's well done. It's well constructed from a like, kind of narrative standpoint and like tying up all the loose ends and things. And one of the things I loved about it is that there's not like endless, endless discussion of lore or like setting up for a sequel. Oh, it's going to be part of a trilogy. So we have to have all these parts in the movie that make no sense unless you see all of them. Well, this is the thing. Everyone's praising how emotional the ending was and how great it was. But I mean, the movie ends with like the cheesiest like child's play, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, stinger, right? That did make me angry. I was like, I was actually kind of liking it up until that point. And then the very end happens, which we won't say for those few people who haven't seen it yet. And I was just like, man, really? Really, really? Really? Can you imagine like at the end of Jaws? (laughs) 
everybody's yeah okay. yes everybody's fine captain quint is like suddenly like okay again he's just like waving <laughs> it was all just a dream it isn't quite that bad in this film but it's it's just if you are somebody who is easily offended by sappiness that's just it's sentimental it's like drippy drippy syrupy sentimental well this is sort of a thing i saw some japanese friends kind of really criticizing and going harshly against they're like you know what post-war japan ain't no joke man like even yes. growing up in tokyo in the 60s and 70s they would see like homeless disfigured war veterans like begging for money in the street like you don't feel that kind of i don't know what you would call it as much as this film wants to be about like trauma and like the yes. war there's nothing in it that feels emotionally impactful beyond you know looking at a photo of a person and going well this is why i have to do what i gotta do or maybe i'm having a nightmare about monsters this time i don't know it felt a little lightweight considering the gravity of world war ii don't play with that stuff if you ain't going to go all the way that's kind of how i felt about it you know well put because it's actually if i'm you know insofar as i'm angry about this film which i'm not because it was a entertaining expect it's very difficult for me well to because the marvels you're angry about the marvels <laughs> I was, and Star i was really Wars, angry right? about the eternals but not this film no it felt like a, a cheat again like it felt like a bait and switch and it's i it also felt like it was erasing the experience uh the lived experience of japanese people in that era like a lot of people starved to death kids had nothing to play with they're like you know in in a in a bombed out wasteland and you know americans played a role in that in making that wasteland so did japanese you know it's and by taking the occupation out and making it seem almost like the war didn't happen it's just like well you know why are you you, you just you're milking the era for its sentimentality and not actually saying anything. That's That was my issue with it. And also just kind of making the characters, the protagonists, you know, they're victims. They're victims of the war. You know, the sort of like, if they can defeat Godzilla, then they can get over the trauma of the war. There's really no talk about the ethics of the war or like, yeah. you know, the first Godzilla film from 54 is all about that. It's all about yes. ethically, are we doing the right thing? Did we do right. the right thing? If we do this, will that be the right thing? That's what it's why continues to be such a you know kind of amazing film 70 years later but minus one just just like toys with those things it waves them in front of you but doesn't do anything substantial with them that's how i felt but well and even beyond that thematically you know yamazaki has gone on record with like uh he was in an interview with deadline he said that the, the theme of the movie to him was you can't rely on the government you can only you know take care of yourselves which is okay you know fine if, if that's going to be your theme but if that's going to be your theme why are you setting it in a time when there is no Japanese government. There's practically like Japan is a husk. So it's really difficult to be, you know, complaining about civil services or or, you know, like this is just not a really great time to set things. You know, human rights are always important and the government should be taking care of its citizens all the time. But this isn't a really great, you know, example in history to be using if you want to make that point. Uh, the Americans are running everything. And then he basically kicks the Americans out of the film. So it's like, well, who's doing what for what now? It's just, it's muddled is what I would who's say. Who's zooming who? Yeah. So, wow. that's that, Now that's off my chest. I feel much better, Patrick. I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going to go outside and touch some grass. I'm going to go forest bathe. I'm going to watch about 500 YouTube video reviews of people in rooms surrounded by Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars merchandise saying that it's the greatest Godzilla movie ever made. You won't believe what happens in the new Godzilla movie, Patrick. Question mark. Will you believe? Make the thumbnail where you're making that like silly face because that's the only kind of thumbnail that YouTube apparently accepts now. Those are the only ones I click on, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. It's why, you know, all of those self-help videos and, you know, uh, aggressive uh, weaponized charity streaming videos 
videos. Well, I mean, I'm glad like a halfway decent Godzilla movie came out this year because I guess it's what Godzilla versus Kong, the whatever empire, the next bad American Godzilla movies coming down the pike. There's kind of been that like monster verse TV show. What is it? Monarch going on in the background, which is also playing around with history again, sort of like setting things in the 1950s, toying with like the army, toying with like nuclear power, but like not doing anything with it. I don't, I don't get it, man. I know I get it. I, I, I get what you're saying, but I, I want to say one positive thing about this movie, you know, besides the fact I like the kaiju scenes, it's a movie. It like, it, it, there's no connection to anything else. This guy set out to tell a story and he did. I love that. It's so rare these days because you're always tuning into a film and it's part of like a quadrilogy or whatever. So I'm always happy when I can go in and see, okay, that's his vision. That's the story he wanted to tell. Now I'm done. I can go. I, I didn't have to watch 13, you know, TV series to make heads or tails of why some character was showing up and doing something whenever. That That is something I've... Thank you, Mr. Yamazaki. Thank you. Do you think he'll do Godzilla Plus One where Anguirus shows up like he did in Godzilla Raids again? I, I It's almost certain he's going to direct another one now because this did so well. Like it, it broke box office records. You and I are the only ones who have an issue with it, Patrick. What's wrong with us? No, actually, I saw a YouTube video by Unseen Japan and this guy does a pretty good job of going into the whole post-war problem with the movie and uh, really breaking it down quite How nicely. How did you find him if he's unseen? That's a good question. Oh, it's Unseen Japan. No, I get it. Okay, sorry. I'm just kidding. Sorry, Unseen Japan. I'm not making fun of you. I just, that just was a funny joke to make right there. Is he like that comedian's G-string? Like it's there, but you can't see it. So it looks like he's naked. God, I will I will admit I'm not a huge watcher of YouTube videos of any stripe. I thank you. I thank you for, for wading into that and uh, telling me. Yeah. No, I get all my news and information about like, you know, vaccines and like who to vote for from YouTube videos. It's great. You should check them out. That's a step up. I only get my news from anime. So that's the only way I get news about the world. You know, apparently there's like blood sucking vampires uh, attacking Japan in, in the 1920s or something. So do you mean tourists? Blood sucking freaks. Uh, I've been actually spending a lot of time recently in places outside of Tokyo. Like I went to Kyushu for a shoot and then I went to Hokkaido for another one. And like, there's no tourists in these places. It's like, people are like, wow, what are you doing here? Man, what are you doing here? They're putting bread in your jar. <laughs> it's like, hey, remember me? Foreign person. They're like, you go back wrong place. Did anyone ever tell you that? Can we do an alternate history of... 2023-2024 Tokyo where the amount of tourists is cut down by like 75% so I can just walk through the Shibuya scramble without like having to breathe the emanations of hundreds of people standing within one meter of me. You mean getting run over by the Mario Kart racers? Are you there Godzilla? It's me, Matt. That's going to be my that's going to be my memoir. I just I, I I'm putting a pin in that. Nobody else can use that. Can Takashi Yamazaki use that? <laughs> He can, he can, but he has to make me really melodramatic. I'm going to be sitting there like looking at a photograph of my, you know, when I survived the Cola Wars, that's what I want it to be about. You know, I survived the Cola Wars. I was sent out on a final mission in the Cola Wars, but I, I decided to turn back and I've been tormented by it ever since. I never took the Pepsi challenge. I come to you now a veteran of a thousand Cola Wars, man. <laughs> So what is a man who is faced with the Pepsi challenge, but yet chooses neither? It's something, it's something that's been resonating through my entire life up until now. 
Takashi Yamazaki can do Pepsi Man, or maybe Hideaki Anno <laughs> can do a Pepsi Man movie. God, I've forgotten about him. Pepsi Man, what, the, the crappy CG hero. I thought it was like a guy wearing like a, a fetish latex suit, like something you could get like in the back streets of Akihabara, but it was all CG, huh? I think that was your dream, Patrick. When was that? The aughts? Was that, was that the 1990s? It feels like PlayStation 1 era or something it like does, that. It does, like That's 1999, a number, another summer. Well, they need to have, yeah, they need to have a lot of foreign actors in Pepsi Man. We can be like guys from Coca-Cola trying to like stop the spread of Pepsi in Japan. You know what? We're going to redo this, man. We're, we're totally, we're going to, we can be Shin Pepsi, man. I'm pitching this. I'm, you can't, you can't stop me. I'm going to pitch this. Shin Pepsi. What if Pepsi, man, were real? Like what would, what if society had to react realistically to Pepsi, man's uh, presence? Who was he fighting again? Was he, was he, because this is Japan. So he couldn't have actually actively been fighting the rival company like Coca-Cola, which he should have been doing. Fighting the guys selling the telephone cards illegally in Rapongi, I don't know. Something Did like somebody that. make a mecha Pepsi Man that like has to take him on? I don't know. For those of you who are listening and have never heard of Pepsi Man, there's a thing called Google. I recommend. Pepsi Man. The cry of the nation, echoing throughout the nation. When the world needs hydration, salvation comes in a Well, that about wraps it up for episode 70 of the Pure Tokyo Scope podcast. I want to thank everyone for listening and spreading the word about the show and so on and so on. What he said. Is like, <laughs> that's a, no, what, what, I agree. I agree. I agree. I agree 100%. So thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. See ya. See ya.